England, November. I take a train from Heathrow Airport. My eyes bulge in the cold, searching, searching for human contact after a long, lonely flight. But none and nothing, just the deaf, dumb trees of CCTV. A train arrives. Cock Foster's is the final stop. Drag my bag, take a seat, and drift to sleep. Awake, still on the train. A human voice. It's coming from down the carriage. I scan faces in seat rows. Everyone's heads are down to books or phones, except one. Where the face should be, a newspaper splays between two hands. And above the byline bobs a pale forehead, a close-shaved pate. One leg in the aisle, white trainers, black track pants. A word curdles. Chav. A real-life white ruffian, doming the whole car with his barnyard yelp. Or am I jumping to conclusions? Should I just see the best in him? Maybe it's Tourette's. Maybe. I strain in my seat, staring at the newsprint when... He knows. Slowly hands lower paper, and I see eyes, nose, and a smile right. And then he winks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number one of the Commonwealth of Dunces podcast. I am one of your two eminent hosts. My name is JD Addy, AKA Jump Daddy, AKA a big baby boy. And I'm here with my cousin who can introduce herself. Hi everybody, I'm uh, Valancey Sterling, AKA Val. And I am a fully grown woman. We are two people bonded by more than just a mutual interest in podcasting, but the bonds of family itself. Initially, I wanted to call this the Kissing Cousins podcast. However... (laughs) So glad you didn't, JD. uh, (laughs) In order to keep things above board in terms of Christmas and uh, with the law, we decided to have a different focus. Uh, and yet maintain that general conversational intimacy that comes with close family. So to be clear, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a podcast about inappropriate relationships anyway, 
any form whatsoever. Rather, we have found another subject which I think you will be equally, if not more, interested in. I am curious. You've 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 woken me up. I'm, you know, here in the early hours talking to you via the interwebs. Why are we here? I've been fortunate enough uh, these past couple of years in my other role, my other job, to visit every single Commonwealth country, of which there are 53. Now, what other Commonwealth countries? They're that that weird group of nations which has come out of what was once the British Empire. Every continent on Earth, every type of climate and culture is captured, I suppose, within these nations, all united by a common experience of one time or another being a British colony. So there are a whole lot of stories there, some happy, many abject, a lot just completely absurd, that I think are worth telling. So in our podcast, each week, we're going to focus on one of these 53 nations. We're going to talk to somebody who has an intimate connection to one of these Commonwealth countries, be that someone who's in that country right now, somebody who's from that country, or even somebody who's simply spent a lot of time there, who has an insight that most people don't. I did some rough calculations earlier, uh, JD, you'll be pleased to know, and I'm excited because I have not been to many of these countries, and my calculations have concluded that I've been to exactly three of them. So <laughs> so there are 50 that I've never been to and all of them I'm interested in exploring further. So for our listeners, think of me as a bit of a amateur history buff slash nerd who is also pretty interested in stories of colonisation and the Commonwealth is one of them. Yeah, well, look, three out of 53 ain't bad and that gives us a really nice number that we can all wrap our heads around. So... The Commonwealth of Nations, as it exists currently, is an evolution and outgrowth of what was once the British Empire. We're going to get to more detail in further episodes how that empire was started, how it evolved, and what the ongoing ramifications of it are. But for our first episode, I think we should start close to home. And so that does mean the old country, that does mean the UK. Right now when we're recording, Val and I are under isolation orders, as I suppose a lot of our listeners will be too. We are in the midst of the 2020 COVID-19, aka coronavirus crisis, and the United Kingdom has not been spared. The big news story this week coming out of the UK was uh, Boris Johnson going into and then thankfully out of intensive care. I'm sure many of us, not just those in Commonwealth nations, have been watching with interest um, the progress of his health situation. (laughs) Yeah, heavy with symbolism there, perhaps. And by that, I suppose I mean, is Boris Johnson's ill health resonant with a narrative of general decline for the United Kingdom? Whether it's Brexit or now Harry and Meghan quitting the royals, sometimes it feels like these bedrock institutions of the country are dissolving in real time. But at the same time, the UK remains a beacon. For one, colonial plunder and contemporary capitalism means it's still a very, very rich country. For two, the English language is the 21st century's lingua franca. And so 
this little island's influence on the world is huge. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to education. The UK's leading universities are seen as finishing schools for the global elite. So we're talking the rich, the royal, and those with even bigger ambitions. So I think it follows that these universities are places where the UK's class divides are really keenly felt. And Val, today we are very lucky because to explore these ideas, I had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tom Goy. Dr. Tom is an Australian who lectures on the subject of Latin at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And prior to that, he taught at Cambridge and Oxford universities too. So while I won't talk Latin with Tom, we do get into the very specific world of elite UK universities, their connections to colonialism, and of course, high street supermarkets. What were the initial contrasts between the experience of studying at an Australian university and studying at Cambridge? In general, before I left, I was kind of worried that the standard at Cambridge was going to be much, much higher. But I actually found that it wasn't that much higher. It was more that <laughs> it was more that there's more of an sort of academic pressure cooker environment at Cambridge. So at the University of Sydney, like, you know, you could take it seriously and no one was stopping you from taking it seriously. But the norm of your average University of Sydney student is, you know, you go to campus, you'll you'll hang out a bit, like you'll, you know, you'll go to class, but like uh, you don't have to be that committed. Whereas People at Cambridge, the, the you know, the undergrads there, the, the system just makes you take it super seriously. You you have a lot more small classes where you're like very, very accountable to the lecturers. So basically you're, you know, you're sitting in a class of like one or two people for like two to three hours a day and there is just absolutely nowhere you can hide, you know. So the, the kind of personalised educational experience at Cambridge is, is much higher. There's, le there's less kind of academic anonymity. I'd say that's the main difference. Yeah. And speaking of that, there's a real tradition there. I don't know if it's UK wide or particular to Cambridge, but the public uh, presentation of results. Can you, can you let people know how that works? Yeah, this is one of the most brutal customs of Cambridge. So basically when, when uh, your degree results get published, they literally get published to everyone in the university community. So they get your your class bracket, okay, so you get either a, a first, a 2-1, a 2-2 or a third, okay. So those are the, that's the kind of order of the, the marks brackets. And those, um, and, and your bracket goes up uh, on this huge kind of, um, piece of paper in one of the most prominent locations in the university outside uh, the Senate House, the Central Administrative Building. So, you know, the day of publication of re results, everyone kind of flocks there to, to see what they got. Um, and this, uh, it, it, it is just very traumatic as well. I mean, I actually, um, 
my part, my ex partner uh, was doing, you know, was doing an undergraduate there once upon a time, and and her mum came to visit her from Italy, and um, I put my foot in it by telling her mum that her degree result was published, and why didn't she have a look? And I got in massive trouble for that move. It's a really, in, in a word, it's a very humiliating process. Everyone, everyone can sort of place you at Cambridge. That's that's the thing as well. So you, along the way, as an undergraduate student, you get sort of pigeonholed as either, you know, you're a first kind of student or you're a 2-1 kind of student or you're a 2-2 sort of student. So you go around carrying this kind of albatross of academic expectations, whether positive or negative, uh, <laughs> around your neck. And it's, yeah, it, it can be very oppressive. But what about some of the, the more soft focus positives of a place like Cambridge? It's a bit of a glib uh, reference, but like the Harry Potter conception of the place, the beautiful old buildings, the hallowed professors. Were there particular traditions or just aesthetics that really left a mark for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the Harry Potter comparison, yeah, it's an obvious one, but it, there is some truth to it, right? Although I have to confess, I never read Harry Potter because I found the little guy a smug bastard. But um, but anyway, these, um, you know, it, it's true that places like Cambridge, you know, Oxford's the same. They they do have this kind of aura, you know, they're old, they're stone, they're, they're creepers and, you know, elaborate ivy kind of growing up the wall um cambridge has this beautiful kind of um river flowing through it where everyone kind of uh in in the spring and summer months you'll you'll find you know loads of tourists and students just kind of leisurely floating on their punts their boats going up the river um it's yeah it's also full of these archaic rituals as as you say okay so if you you know step outside at about 7 p.m. Uh, every evening, you know, you'll see a bunch of students just rushing around in their black full-on academic gowns, okay? So, yeah, a lot of the colleges you have to, you still have to wear kind of formal academic dress to to dinners. Um, some of the kind of more abstruse slash problematic uh, traditions that I saw on display there still were like, at my college, uh, I went to a college called King's um, in, in Cambridge, and um, there was this society called the Preprandial Society, and it was, um, it, this is a very euphemistic term, it was basically about an older uh, kind of alcoholic fellow, uh, more or less kind of entrapping uh, young, attractive choir boys and kind of like seeing, you know, seeing what happens. So that, uh, you know, that kind of Cambridge still does exist, although it's been stamped out I, <laughs> slowly, you know. I also heard other stories about um this college Peterhouse, and I've never determined whether this is true or not, but apparently uh, they still have a club where, uh, you know, um, at some point in the evening uh, when, you know, the fellows and the students have all had a bit to drink, the lights are just switched off and uh, all bets are off. And just to clarify for myself and the listener, um, Cambridge University, and then you mentioned a couple of colleges there. I think King's the one you belong to, Peterhouse the one who likes to turn out the lights and see what happens. What is the relationship between the university and colleges? Do you have to be 
in a college to go to the university? Can you just be, I don't know, like a, a townie, somebody who was born and bred in Cambridge and stays at mum and dad's place and just takes the bus into uni? How, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, well, interestingly, there there is a fairly high quotient of uh, Cambridge students who grew up in Cambridge. Uh, this is something that's little known because... Uh, you know, it, it's seen as a very sort of uh, UK-wide and international place. But, but actually, if you think about it, there are so many, you know, professors and academic staff at Cambridge. It's a huge university. All of them end up having kids and a lot of them end up <laughs> sending their or trying to get their kids into Cambridge, right? So there's, you know, there is that. But even those kids who... Uh, grow up in Cambridge or from Cambridge, they, they're part of, of a college. So it's to, um, you know, to be part of the university, you, you have to be enrolled and uh, at a college. And, and by at, I mean you have to basically live on site in, in the college. Colleges are like sort of, um, you know, complexes of, of buildings which provide accommodation and pastoral care and also academic um you know, an, an academic teaching to, to their members, okay? So uh, the kids, you know, the kids who are, who are part of Cambridge, they will, they will all be part of a college and the college will be a kind of centre for their social life as well. So that, that's actually another big difference from Australian universities like Sydney, you know. Australian universities have very good campus culture, at least they used to before uh, students stopped drinking. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and they have, like, kind of central bars on site in Australian universities, like Manning Bar in, in Sydney, for example. Cambridge is, is much more multi-centric in that uh, students mainly socialise within their colleges and all colleges have bars. Um, and and the, the best friends that you make as an undergraduate at these places are, are based in your college, more or less. Oh, so did you have a rival college to whom a hatred and opprobrium were directed at all times? Yeah, well, you know, these, these old college rivalries, they tend to obtain mainly between the, um, you know, the, the older colleges. And I was at one of these kings. It was, um, you know, it's, it's one of the kind of postcard old colleges of Cambridge. Um, and it, the distinctive thing about Kings is it considers itself um, very left-wing. And I think that's kind of true among the student body. It's probably not true among the fellows, among the academic staff, but uh, that's another story. Anyway, uh, Kings as a kind of lefty wannabe college kind of takes as its rival some of these like older, extremely wealthy, um, posh, Colleges like St John's, uh, a little bit like Trinity as well, but yeah, probably probably more St John's. So Kings like to likes to position itself against the kind of stuffier, uh, richer, um, you know, more kind of crusty old colleges. Kings, Bernie Sanders, St John's, Mitt Romney. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just about right. <laughs> we'll work with that. Um, yeah. Okay. So. That was uh, Cambridge, world-famous university, crucible of so many great academic minds, including yourself. Now you are in the employ of St Andrews, further to the north, up in Scotland. And if St Andrews is ringing a faint bell for people, I guess a lot of people would know it as the place that Prince 
William attended during his university years and where he met Kate. And so this is a university clearly with some stature and certainly if it's good enough for royalty, it's going to be good enough for not just the elite in the UK, but from all around the world. So can you take us now to St Andrews and maybe contrast a little bit the atmosphere between Cambridge? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, as a, as a kind of opening anecdote on that, I mean, uh, you know, the, the Kate Wills uh, mythology is very prominent within St Andrews itself. So there's uh, there's a classic um, division between these uh, cafes at, at St Andrews, okay? So, um, you know, St Andrews is a tiny, tiny village, okay? Bear that in mind. It's it's basically a village of, of 20,000 people. Uh, a lot of the, the population is students. And uh, so, there, you know, there aren't that many, like, cafes or restaurants or shops, okay? So there's one, there's one cafe uh, which has a big sign in the window that says where Kate met Wills, uh, and then there's another cafe which I go to that has a sign that says where Kate dumped Wills. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, St Andrews really trades on that reputation. Um, in terms of its difference from Cambridge, um, I, I guess it is a little bit like a, a Cambridge or an Oxford by the sea, okay? So St Andrews, it's, it's got this kind of funny feel. Um, it's like a kind of um, ancient Scottish fishing village, okay? So it, it, it used to be, you know, big in the fishing industry and that, and that still, um, still persists. There are, there are some fishing rest, fish restaurants, you know, and that whole part of Scotland is, is very sort of, fish heavy but um you know that gives it gives it this certain um i don't know this certain like um gruffness or this certain like weather beaten quality that that cambridge just doesn't have so you know st andrews like you're when you're in a lot of the classrooms you're sort of directly looking out over the grim expanse of the north sea you know this kind of endless Gray, endless mass, mass of grey matter, um, and that kind of changes the philosophy of it a little bit for me. It, it like it feels more like a, um, I, I don't know. It feels more like a, a kind of place for serious contemplation. Um, and yeah, so that that's kind of the, the main... <laughs> serious contemplation of royal bloodlines included. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Look, in terms of the the difference in the student body, though, there um, in terms of class, there's not a whole lot of difference between Cambridge and St Andrews. So um, famously, St Andrews is kind of renowned as the place where Oxbridge rejects go. Okay. So if you're kind of if you go into a posh school in the UK, um, and you know you for whatever reason, you didn't get into Oxford or Cambridge, you go to St Andrews and and so it's, you know, it is full of like this kind of ridiculous crowd who, uh, some of whom even own property in St Andrews, right? Like I've, I've, I've seen, you know, students like talk about how mummy and daddy bought them a four-bedroom house in St Andrews for their four-year stay in St Andrews. And I've seen, I've seen kids driving SUVs around town as well. Like it's kind of that level of, of wealth circulating. You, you do come across a lot, of, a lot of people who are just kind of 
um, it, it's just a kind of matter of time before they enter the machinery of of the ruling ruling class, more more or less. You know, um, there's a, there's a sense in which you know you've you've already got this imprimatur of um, you know. Of, of wealth and, and power and, and privilege attached to you and, you know, going to one of these places is just going to entrench those networks further and then you you really don't have to do all that much. I mean, you know, that's um, it, like you, you do, I think, see that a little bit more at Oxford. So uh, Oxford was um, a place I spent a year as a, as a very young, exploited uh, academic uh, and, you know, they're, they're um, the the sort of link between the link between the university and politics is is really strong. You know, they go through the Bullingdon Club. Um, that's your classic kind of Tory route. I have to say that I did also see people in Cambridge who, I reckon, in five to ten years, they're going to be massive in the Labor Party um, if the UK Labor Party kind of survives its its current travails that is but um but uh you know i've got one person in mind in particular who is like an absolute star and a sort of like politician uh in waiting and and you know there are lots of people lots of students around who kind of use the university and its kind of social hotbed dynamics as a way to kind of cut their teeth on um on politics on you know um yeah, on like managing people on mm. um, yeah on this sort of thing. So it, it is interesting as a crucible in that way. You've given us a great insight. I think a real really nice feel for what for, for some of the goings on and and the atmosphere of of elite universities in the UK. And you're you're teaching at St Andrews now, which is in Scotland. And Scotland is, I suppose, you could in in a sort of a broad sense say one of England's first colonies. One of the things that I'd never known growing up in Australia in terms of this colonial relationship from England to Scotland is the phenomenon or the, the ongoing activity of about 100 years of the things called the Highland Clearances. And mm. I'd never heard of them until I went to Scotland and, sure, had a couple of bevvies, talked to some Scottish people and got to the root of some of their animus against the British. <laughs> And some people started to tell me about um, the Highland Clearances, which from about the mid-18th century, so let's say 1750 to the mid-19th century, there was both a systematic as well as sort of an informal clearing of populations, of traditional Scottish clan populations, particularly people who spoke Gaelic in the outer reaches of the Scottish territory, so the Highlands, forcing them into urban environments or concentrating them in what were then smaller villages and are now towns and cities, so that the ruling classes and particularly English ruling classes could establish viable grazing pastures. And that was something I had no idea about and something that I think really replicates so much of the, the systematic dispossession of Indigenous peoples throughout what would then become the British Empire and what would then become the United States and certainly here in Australia. So that's certainly one part of the history and something I'd love to, to learn, more, learn more about. But to bring it to the present day, is there a tension there between a institution like St Andrews, which, which I guess would be largely peopled by this British aristocracy, the literal descendants of these kind of conquerors and exploiters, and the local population or 
or just Scotland itself? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned the Highland clearances and you you make that that connection with, um, you know, some of the most brutal forms of of uh, British colonialism uh, worldwide because, yeah, I think I think that does hold true and it really, um, it really sort of puts a different complexion on um, this continuing tradition of, like, posh English people who sort of romanticise Scotland. You know, they think of it as this, you know, giant um, kind of, um, expanse of uh, you know of free of freedom and uh, you know this beautiful landscape, uh, and then as often in history, you realise that uh, empty landscape uh, has some pretty <laughs> some pretty concrete concrete historical reasons behind it. Um, so yeah, I, I you know um, I do know a few people in in the UK who sort of um, well who Southern English. People who do sort of treat Scotland as a as a bit of a, a holiday destination, and and they love the kind of um, yeah, they love the vacancy of it and the you know the emptiness. But yeah, it's it has a chilling history anyway. So uh, St Andrews, yeah, in the, in terms of the contrast between like town and gown, I guess um, that yeah, that that's is certainly uh, the case there. I mean. Um, St Andrews is interesting because, uh, like many of those small university cities, and it probably goes for Cambridge and Oxford as well, um, it's got this incredible like tension and contradiction between the very wealthy, uh, to the students who tend to be very wealthy, and the local population um, who, you know, m- many of whom are... are um, you know, pretty dyed-in-the-wool working class. Um, so in the way that that sort of breaks down in practice is that there's kind of limited interaction between these two these two groups of people. Um, but sometimes that interaction kind of boils over. <laughs> so that limited interaction, you know, it happens and it, and, and it boils over. So there are certain... Um, there are sort of certain like pubs and um, you know bits of the town that kind of get designated as like towny destinations by the students, and students kind of tend to avoid those places. Uh, I, in my kind of um, you know, uh, with my um, working class immigrant persona on, I try. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, I try to more to frequent the uh, the towny locations because those those pubs tend to be, you know, the funner the funner places. In St Andrews, there's a pub called Keys Bar, which is like absolutely rammed on a Friday, and you can, you know, you can just chat to anyone. It's it's incredible. So anyway, that's all to say that I think these these two populations are kind of ghetto ghettoized and. Um, yeah, there, there, you know, there is a little bit of resentment from town members who aren't part of the university that, you know, uh, that the, there are all these, like, posh kids swanning around their space all the time. But most of the time it's a kind of, like, coexistence without, um, you know, without much mutual acknowledgement, I would say. <laughs> You're reminding me of a time that I came back to Sydney after a flight from London, totally dazed and just wandering through those duty-free airlocks that they have in the sense that you get off the plane and before you even hit customs, you hit, first of all, with duty-free. 
picked up a couple of bottles of this and that and was lining up. And look, it was a long flight. I didn't get much sleep. So perhaps I did uh, sidle into line at an, at an awkward juncture. But this guy just bellowed from behind me, get out the fucking way. <laughs> and I, you know, turned around, mumbled, oh, what? So he's like, you English cunts are all the same. Fuck off. <laughs> and I don't know whether that was just a roiling Scottish resentment that this man had felt that he'd had to keep a lid on at all times while in the UK and then the first moment he was intercontinental on safer shores in Australia, he just let somebody who looked vaguely like an English toff have it or (laughs) whether he generally thought I was an English person and he'd been cut in on duty-free lines all his life. (laughs) Well, you know, the the trauma that the the Scots take with them, it's, uh, you know, some kind of genetic memory of oppression is, is, uh, is activated, isn't it? You know, they they start hating hating the English even more when they're in in Australia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. just <laughs> just also one one thing on that. Um, you know, on on the position of the Scots vis-a-vis the English. Um, I think you know, we, while all of my sympathy lies with the Scots, I think we also have to be a bit careful of thinking of them as uh, a sort of proto oppressed people as well because mm. you know obviously there's the the brave heart myth and blah 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 william wallace but but um actually you know the scots were some of the most vigorous um exploiters of empire um mm. out of all the people in in you know in britain right they were like they were the engineers they were the you know going out doing doing the frontline work of of colonialism so and they benefited a lot from it as well so, yeah the the um, yeah. sort of feedback loop from the 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 scottish enlightenment um, the yeah. industry and the knowledge was uh, put to brutal use particularly in places like india um, where a lot of uh, people of Scottish extraction uh, were very high up in uh, the bureaucracy and the, the general ruling classes there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 a really, it's a really good point. So, and something that, as you say, Braveheart, I think, in the popular imagination has completely, uh, well, just completely destroyed this, the, the, the fact that there, there, there was and there continues to be a very much a Scottish ruling class who often worked hand in glove with the English, the Southerners, to oppress their own people and certainly uh, did very well out of the expansion of the British Empire. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's taken um, uh, uh, Mel Gibson's, um, you know, beautiful anti-Semitic face to kind of cleanse that, <laughs> <laughs> the, the memory. But, yeah, it's, it's really important to keep in mind that um, Scotland, you know, I think in Scotland... They sometimes play the oppressed very well. They they kind of take that comedic role of abjection, uh, but yet you know this this kind of does neglect a, a fair bit of, of solid solid history there. If that's history, though, let's 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 take a flight of fancy to the future. So I think it was 2014, the last referendum on Scottish independence, which came pretty close. But it feels like since Brexit, the cleave between north and south of the British Isles is just growing ever wider. And the next time, if and when there is a referendum, some people's dreams really could come true uh, in terms of Scotland becoming an independent nation. And I was kind of thinking about this, like, okay, so 
Scotland unbound from the rest of the UK, what does it look like on its own? And very, very, very superficially, you could kind of squint and look at Scotland and say, hey, it, it kind of could be a bit like a Norway or a Sweden or a Denmark, i.e. geographically a Northern European nation, demographically pretty homogenous, a pretty strong sense of uh, self, and politically a long history of being left-leaning throughout the country uh, in a way that you would see in the, those Scandinavian nations I mentioned. Just gazing into the future, Tom, from, from what you know of the now, what, what would you posit for the possible then? Well, my, my general sense from being on the ground there is that this is, is still really active, uh, particularly in the minds of, of the younger generation of Scots. I mean, they went through that 2014 referendum completely energised, I have to say. Like, it was, it was kind of this sense of, like, actually fighting for an issue that was of direct consequence to you as a people because, you know, if you think about uh, the, this, the Scottish political experience within the broader UK in, you know, the last whatever, I don't know, 50 years maybe, it's, it's often been an experience of feeling completely disenfranchised, complete feeling like your politics are never really represented in Westminster. And that's, that's not about reg region, that's more, that's about, you know, the, the political stance, right? As you say, Scotland tends to be much further left uh, than, than southern England, at least. So, you know, imagine, you know, being a young person, like, in sort of working in this legacy, uh, feeling like you're completely disconnected from Westminster and then stepping into 2014 and actually having an opportunity for self-determination, an opportunity to establish a system in which, you know, your politics are better represented. Um, so, you know, I think that there's enough energy there to uh, continue in that vein. And I think now that Brexit is happening once uh, once the sign of corona lifts, I guess, um, you know, that's going to, you know, that, that will um, drive Scots, uh, particularly younger Scots, even closer to Europe. Um, yeah, there are all, all sorts of questions that still hang over Scottish independence, though, and the, and the sort of scare tactics that we used successfully last time against the referendum getting up were, um, were was this economic question, right? Like, you know, will Scotland be able to, you know, survive off its, like, off its oil-rich, um, off its basically fossil fuel exports in, in the North Sea? Like, is it too much of a kind of plaything of, um, you know, of the, like, vicissitudes of, of um, oil prices and, and things like that? <laughs> oil and um, iron brew, the two, <laughs> the two yeah, elements exactly. undergirding our nation. <laughs> I did say iron brew market so things are things have got to be looking up on that front diversify yeah, yeah. i don't um, know yeah if iron brew i know we, we want you know cosmopolitan flavors from around the world to enrich and expand our um, human experience but when it gets to like iron brew from scotland and tato chips from ireland being available in literally every Woolworths throughout australia you gotta the uh, the inherent contradictions of capitalism start to uh, <laughs> <laughs> Made themselves felt, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, um, I would say that there are just so many unpredictable factors at play here, and and you got you always got to keep in mind with these big political referendums, like the the 
the uncertainty factor plays a big role. So, like, the fact that Brexit is happening and people, you know, don't really know how, how this is going to affect the UK economically, um, that can tend to make people a bit more conservative, um, especially, like, the older generation. But I, I would say that young Scots are still very much up for giving a massive two middle fingers uh, to southern England because... They deserve it. I'm wondering if I could basically relate to you a list of the top 10 supermarkets in the UK, and then together we can swiftly categorise them in, into sort of a Marxist dialectic. And by that I mean in Marx's probably his most accessible work, which, <laughs> which I've taken to reading at bedtimes before I pop off to sleep after my hearty vegan dinner, brownie and ice cream, whether this supermarket caters to, well, let's start from the top of his, his, his class classification, the bourgeoisie, so the controllers of capital and the people who use capital, uh, who, who gain ever more capital from the exploitation of excess labour. The petty bourgeoisie, those who might have a small amount of capital of their own are in business for themselves but don't have such an expansive hold that they say employ other people. So this could include your professional class or your sort of independent contractor, your plumber who is doing quite well for themselves. The proletariat, the great mass of people, the people who have to work for a wage and work somewhere in a, in a hierarchy where they have a boss, they're told what to do, and they, they're somebody who can be hired and fired. And then finally, the lumpen proletariat. Now, this is a somewhat controversial category that Marx himself never went much into, but basically it's often thought of as the criminal class and perhaps, you, you know, un- unfairly, but some people in politics might today place that same cast on, say, you know, your dull bludgers. So let's prove the eternal applicability of Marx by holding it up to the supermarket chains of the UK. Fresh off the block and fresh out of southern Germany, central Germany, Aldi. Is does Aldi cater to the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, the proletariat, or the lumpen proletariat? I think Aldi would be sort of petty bourgeoisie and proletariat. Okay, this it's a, a, a supermarket that's considered purely for bulk buying and saving. Uh, it's also been a target, oddly, of anti of um, anti Europe sentiment. Okay, a lot of people are saying, you know, let's get out so that we don't have to so that we don't have Aldi's kind of defiling our landscape anymore. So anyway, yeah, it's, I would say petty bourgeoisie and, uh, and proletariat. Yeah, <laughs> the petty bourgeoisie always looking to, to, to squeeze a dollar, but under the patina of there's a certain respectability of its sort of German origins and it's like it's just German and efficient. Like, uh, I'm not being cheap, I'm just being logical, like, uh, <laughs> exactly. like the Germans. All right, uh, Asda. So uh, Asda, I think, is actually owned by Walmart from afar. I could be wrong on that, but what's your take on Asda? Yeah, I, I think you're right, it is owned by Walmart. Um, Asda was very popular back when I was in Cambridge and it's dropped off the radar a little bit, in at least in the north and Scotland. I'm not sure if it's as prominent there. But but anyway, when I was in Cambridge, I would say it's a kind of cheap option, uh, probably also for your petty bourgeoisie 
maybe slightly um, slightly above Aldi in the in the supermarket scheme of things. Interesting. Okay. Oh boy, we're going to get into latte sipping territory here. Number three, the co-op. Yeah, look, the co-op pretty firmly bourgeoisie, but not not the highest of the high. The, the co-op is actually more the your kind of quick stop stop in and you know pick pick up something that you urgently need. It's not about big bulk buying sessions, but you know classically it's it's the bourgeoisie who can afford not to bulk buy. So you know I would have that as middle middle upper class for sure. So from one extreme to the other, number four, Iceland. Iceland, oh, that is, that's one of the classics, okay? This is an absolute dyed-in-the-wool proletarian supermarket, okay? This is the supermarket for when you, you can't be fucked cooking your food because your shop floor manager at Sports Direct has been riding your ass all day and, you know, you just, you just need something that can be prepared quickly. So it, it originally started as a supermarket for purely frozen foods and it, and it still kind of has that core, but it's, it's branched out into other stuff too. Yeah, I, I can't say I've had the pleasure of much deep diving in, in Iceland in the, the UK, though it was recommended to me quite heartily by somebody who knew my predilections for unusual frozen food. Um, <laughs> but the French equivalent is called Picard. And I have to say the, fro- the flash frozen escargot from Picard really do the trick in a pinch. <laughs> so word to the wise, if you're ever finding yourself in clown school at outer suburban Paris and all of a sudden have a lot of friends over, you can clear out an unwanted party by whipping out the Picard escargot. Um, yeah. Number five, another German entrant on the list. And I'd, I'd be interested in hearing if you have any pertinent contrasts between Aldi, which we've mentioned, and Lidl. Little is an absolute blind spot for me. I have to say, I don't know much about it. I think it probably serves that same, you know, kind of between proletarian and, and petty bourgeoisie um, demographic uh, as Aldi. But, yeah, I, it, it's really unknown to me. Yeah, I've only done so once and it was actually in Edinburgh, I think it was, down, little down, the old little down in Leith, no less. And, yeah, I... I couldn't tell the difference between it and Aldi in terms of form and feel, all the same kind of thing as in pallets of stuff. You, you take your item direct from the pallet or the box in which it came in on hyper efficiency. Number six, Marks and Spencer. Okay, Marks and Spencer, one of my favorite places to hate. This is like firmly, firmly bourgeoisie straight down the line. Okay, it's got a terrible range of products. They're way, they're way overpriced. Um, I have no idea why people shop there, but it's it's kind of one of these pure like it's riding on its brand. I would say two things in favour of Marks and Spencer. It has by far the largest selection of vegan Christmas sandwiches during the uh, during the Christmas sales period. <laughs> and if you need to get a Nutcracker doll at a pinch, it's the only uh, supermarket with two different sizes of Nutcracker dolls. So you know, that's true. It's actually a good option for when you ride and you want like you know a bit of a healthy meal, but uh, that's the only context in which I would venture in. Hey, yeah, yeah. Number seven, Morrison's. Morrison's. Okay, this is one I still don't have my head around. I would say that's also for your working or your lower middle class. Um, Morrison's is a bit of a regional thing as well. I think only prominent in the north of England and, and Scotland. You don't, you don't see much in the south. So 
I might be sort of confusing geography and class here, but the one the one or two times I've been in Morrison's, I've um, you know it, it feels like a bit of a bulk buy destination, and it feels like a kind of um, feels like a it, it has decor from another age as well. It's kind of got this weird like yellow and green bright aesthetic. Have you, have you ever been in one? The couple of times I've done it, I always see people working in the store in those traditional white butcher's hats. And I don't know if that's just because I always look in at the butcher's <laughs> section or that's just part of Morrison's affect. Like <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, Sainsbury's. Uh, Sainsbury's, yeah. This is this solid, solid, solid middle class, yeah. Um, you know, I would say, you know, between petty bourgeoisie and bourgeoisie, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, when when uh, I and my uh, then partner first moved to the UK from Australia, um, we stayed with a kind of, uh, you know, f- a fairly bougie uh, friend of my ex's and, and she, you know, we asked, you know, which su- supermarket should we go to? And she, and she was like, go to Sainsbury's. You'll like Sainsbury's. <laughs> 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 Which I took as the biggest, you know, insult I've ever received in the UK. <laughs> He's great. He's an Obama person. Yeah. <laughs> Number nine, Tesco. Uh, Tesco, yeah. Tesco, that is, it, it's so capacious as to be sort of un, uncategorizable, I think. It's, you know, you do, it, it is renowned for being a bit more working class than your Sainsbury's, for example. but. It really genuinely caters to a huge social range, and I think that's probably reflected in um, in how big it is, right? I think it's mm. it's probably the biggest the biggest supermarket in chain in in the UK. Um, so, you know, people from all walks of life going to Tesco. And if Jeremy Corbyn had won the last election, every other supermarket would be converted to a Tesco, so as to level. Level the class structure. We're all one under the Tesco bunting. Um, Well, from Tesco to our last one, number 10, where would we be without Waitrose? Waitrose, yeah. So this is the absolute summit and kind of parody of class supermarket, firmly, firmly bourgeoisie. Okay, so if if you get a Waitrose card, you know, a loyalty card, uh, it used to be the case, at least, that you got a free copy of The Guardian and a free daily coffee if you just presented that card, okay? So it's that, it's that kind of place. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a, lo- a lot of um, – well, we're in, in Cambridge when we were sort of uh, faux slumming it, we used to actually rob the skips of Waitrose, you know, the, the dumpsters. Oh, dumpster uh, diving. Dumpster diving, yeah, because it used to – they like such good stuff. Um, yeah, and up, but yeah. after a while, inevitably, you got sick of caviar and uh, <laughs> truffle fries. <laughs> exactly, I got sick. It passed the use by date caviar. It just wasn't very good for me. <laughs> <laughs> what was your best find? Uh, we found some solid sandwiches. We also found um, actually the. <laughs> they used to throw out a lot of this like weird kind of tea cake thing called Serene. It's like a sort of like very heavy, dense, like kind of cinnamon flavored sweet bun. Um, and that was, yeah, that was, that was a, always a good shout because it also was jam packed with preservatives. So, you know, you, you know, it would really <laughs> be fine. 
On that note, Dr. Tom Goy, just about time for us to wrap up. However, I know that you do have some products out there in the marketplace. So I'd love for you to just take a moment to boost your merch. And in particular, could you let our listeners know about your latest book, where they can find it and and anything else if they've been taken by your insights into the UK, into Australia, into the particularities of supermarkets in England. Where should they check you and your stuff out? So, you, uh, yeah, you're not going to find content on the kind of UK analysis front in this, in this recent book, but... Uh, but I just published uh, this book called Author Unknown, um, The Power of Anonymity in Ancient Rome. And this is a book basically about uh, literature without authors from the Roman world and how, how readers kind of interact very differently with uh, literature when we have no idea about the author and the context and how kind of literature takes on a, a sort of weird um, power a greater sort of power of universality i guess you could say when you when you don't know the source behind the words um so yeah if you're interested in that kind of stuff you can get that uh, online through amazon or through the harvard university press website uh, or you can contact me directly because i bought 40 copies uh, <laughs> hope, hoping hoping that i would be able to move uh, a bunch of them but you know they're going a bit more slowly than i thought they would so uh, you can you can email me privately if you like find me on the st andrews website dr tom thank you so much for your time today thanks <laughs> thanks for hosting jump daddy So, Valencia, can I put you down for a copy of Dr. Tom's latest book? It sounds pretty interesting. I'm I'm a fan of literature, can't speak Latin, but I like that concept of anonymity and what it means for the way your writing is considered. So, yeah, pop me down for a copy. Nice. You saved it there. You saved it there. Going from the, uh, the general backhanded compliment of sounds pretty interesting and I'm a fan of literature to something that, that, that that's credible. So, look, Christmas is mere months away, so no need for you to... Uh, put down the credit card or force any uh, COVID-contaminated cash through the mail, I'll do the right thing as a good cousin and make sure your stocking is stuffed by what is <gasps> going to be a weighty tome. Excellent. I love the idea of receiving a parcel in the post, especially in these boring COVID-19 times. It's exciting. How about you, JD? What did you take away from your discussion with Tom? What is the difference between Aldi and Little? We got so many answers, so much insight into the state of play in the UK, the tensions between, say, UK and Scotland, and indeed the supermarkets there. But there is still a lot of mystery that shrouds the true nature and the true difference between these titans of the German supermarket scene. And in fact, I think if we're going to understand our Commonwealth of Nations better, it will have to be through this refracted lens of suburban German retailers. So that's my hot take for this week. To close us out, Val... Is there a country or countries you're most looking forward to sinking your teeth into? From my point of view, I'm very interested in the African countries. I won't I won't single one out specifically, but um, I've never been to Africa and I'm quite interested to get into, you know, the the Malawis, the Liotsos, 
Did I even say that right? My pronunciation. Lesotho. Oh, really? Is that how you say it? That's it. Lesotho. Lesotho. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we are wrapped for episode one for the Commonwealth of Dunces podcast. We will be putting out a new episode each and every week, focusing on a different country, talking to somebody seriously interesting in connection to each one. If you liked what you heard, please do subscribe and stream and download this podcast from all the usual places. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Jump Daddy, aka JD Addy, and... Goodbye from me, Valancey Sterling, 